You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Welcome to Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. With your host, Andrew Gerza. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item so you get one free item for penis havers one free item for vulva havers one free item for couples and then you also get six free movies from the adameve.com website you can get your favorite porn or an educational film i love free movies they're so awesome this is such a great deal and then on top of that you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to adameve.com, you're gonna go to checkout, and you're gonna type in darkpod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you're gonna get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're gonna get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to adameve.com and take advantage of it right now. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. 
I want to let you know all about a good friend of mine and somebody who I think you should all get to know. If you are somebody who is looking for a companionship, a friendship, or romance, I want to let you know about my inclusive provider friend, Haley Jade. Haley Jade is a 30-year-old disabled bisexual offering online companionship for friends or romance. They have been published in Vice and HuffPost, and they specialize in working with disabled clients and are disabled themselves. Their online services start at $50 Canadian dollars, and they can be found on Twitter at Sexy Life Coach, Instagram at Sexy Life Coach, and you can book them via their website, Haley Jade, that's H-A-Y-L-E-Y-J-A-D-E dot C-H, to book on their website. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. If you're looking for a fun, sexy, romantic companion who specializes in disabled clients, Haley Jade is the one for you. Book them now. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm your host, Andrew Gerza, your disabled dicksmith, your number one queer cripple. I am your friend who you get comfy, cozy, and crippled with. And I'm all those things to you. And I cannot wait to start the show today. So, as per usual, Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled together and get the show started. First things first, friends, I gotta give a shout out to the amazing people that help shine a bright light on this show every week by putting a their hard-earned dollars down into this show, and I want to give a shout out to one of our new Patreon supporters who went over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge their hard-earned money to keep the show going. The person this week, their name is Helen Rose, who pledged $5 a month to keep the show going and told me that they wanted to do a show with me. So, Helen, I totally want to do a show with you. I'd love to do some research, and I'd love to, to figure out what kind of show you want me to do. I'd love to do that with you. So, Helen, you are the Rose in my life. Yep, that's the pun. Never said it was good, but there it is. Uh, Thank you so much for your pledge, Helen Rose. If you're listening and you love the show and you love what we do and and you want to support the show at all, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month to keep the show going, which means you get the show one day early and a weird, awkward shout-out from me. Or you can pledge up to... $5 a month or more if you want to help keep the show going and you can uh, maybe do a show with me or maybe do give me suggestions for a show or stuff like that and then then you can support the show. You'll also get the show one day early and ad free for any pledge you make. Um, So thank you so much for that. But now let's get on to today's show. The show today, I found it super interesting and super informative because I sat down with two friends of mine who live out in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I sat down with them and I chatted with them because they are two, they are a couple 
who live with both of them with spinal cord injury. And they also live with, they have a 10-year-old son together. And they they really were an interesting couple to sit down with because I sit down with them and their names are Terry Thorson and John Cherneski. And I sit down with Terry and John and talk about their experiences having spinal cord injury, um, what their relationship is like having spinal cord injury, some of the funny, awkward uh, things that can happen to them during sex. I learn also a lot. I talk a lot about on my Twitter and on my social media about the importance of recognizing the differences between being born with disability and, and acquiring disability. And this was a great crash course for me in the similarities and differences of being born disabled and acquiring disability and how the similarities and differences are there and we need to talk about them. And so I really appreciate that John and Terry, who both work in spinal cord injury programs in Vancouver, or no, in British Columbia rather, and I really appreciated sitting down with them and learning this and we had a really fun chat about about spinal cord injury, about their disabilities, about sex, so much stuff to unpack in this one, and I was happy to sit down with them. Now, at some point in the interview, the my audio died, my whole system crashed, and I was still recording in the cloud, thank goodness, but the whole thing crashed. So I didn't edit it out because I'm a shit editor, and so you'll hear it crash, and you'll hear us kind of have to start up again, but it was a really funny interesting, poignant discussion with them that I was really happy to to engage in. So, without further ado, here's my interview with the spinal cord injury couple, John Cherneski and Terry Thorson, right now on the podcast Shining a Bright Light on Disability Story, Disability After Dark. John Cherneski and Terry Thorson, Hello. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hi, so nice to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you both today? Doing pretty good. Yeah. We're uh, it's sitting outside in the beautiful sunshine in the summer, and there's nothing quite like Vancouver in the summertime. Yeah, it's I, pretty awesome. I am very, very jealous of you two. I was just there last October, and I miss Vancouver. If I could move there tomorrow, I would do it. Right? I don't know how you guys deal with the snow. That's the only thing I can't handle. We'd welcome you here with open arms. Definitely. It's, I would move there. If, if I knew that I could get care there and social assistance that wasn't ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> I would move there tomorrow. Yeah, makes sense. Because it's just warm. Yeah, it's yeah. a little added challenge trying to relocate when you've got you know, need for care provisions and things like that. It's a bit, a bit challenging. Yeah, it can definitely be just finding care everywhere. Like I, I also thought at one point about moving to, to Florida for just warmth and looking at the difference in care was like, oh no, I'll stay right where I am. <laughs> I'm good. Exactly. All right. So I want to uh, get the two of you to introduce yourselves and tell me both how disability, what your disabilities are and how they impact your day-to-day life. I'm going to start. Ladies first. All right. Well, um, so uh, I have I acquired a spinal cord injury when I was 24 years old, which was almost 24 years ago. So almost getting into my half life at this point. 
Um, so I injured uh, C6, which is um, the cervical in the, in the neck, uh, and, and got a complete spinal cord injury, which means I have no feeling or movement about sort of nipple level down. I also don't have any um, hand function at all. I work for an organization called Spinal Cord Injury BC as a peer coordinator there. I work at the rehab hospital um, and also I run a virtual peer program. So we do on online peer support. I am the mother of a 10 year old boy and also play wheelchair rugby. Wow, I didn't know that part. That's awesome. <laughs> I think uh, Terry's introduction could go on for about half an hour. She only told you a small tip of the iceberg about all the things that she's done and, and still does. Um, yeah, so my name is John Cherneski. Um, I'm also spinal cord injured since 1993. I've got a C6, C7 injury and mine's a bit more incomplete. So I do have some movement down my left side predominantly. So my left leg works pretty good. My left hand works pretty good. Um, but you know, like Terry, I still use a wheelchair to get around uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, yeah, uh, I work for the Praxis Spinal Cord Institute, so we're a spinal cord injury research institute. Uh, we fund research, we facilitate research, we have a registry of sites, uh, acute and rehab centers right across the country. Uh, we work to improve care uh, in Canada and try to advance research towards curative interventions to try to uh, make spinal cord injury a thing of the past. That's the, that, those are really big undertakings because, you know, it finding cures for, and you know, I also want to touch on so many people that I talk to who are, and that shows like the difference between being born with a disability and acquiring one and just how the mindset might be slightly different because as somebody who was born with congenital disabilities like CP, for me, the disability is like a part of my experience. And I guess for the two of you, well, it's part of your experience now and you've accepted it. It shows that the journey into disability is very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I also think, you know, for, for those that have congenital disabilities, it's, it's all they've ever known. They were born in that body and, and that's the body they're used to. For um, people that have acquired injuries, like spinal cord injuries, you know, you often think, as Terry mentioned earlier, her half-life. You think about how your life was before and, and how your life was after. Um, and I think the age at which you have that spinal cord injury can really have a profound effect. I was fairly young at 16. Terry was also quite young at 24. You know, we've got friends that were injured at, at 12. We've got friends that were injured in their 40s. And I think how you adapt to that change um, is different depending on the age and, and a lot of other factors, but the age is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And Terry, for you? Yeah, I think... Um maybe we'll get into this a little bit deeper later but um for me i always thought that like i died in that car crash right uh that terry died and now there's a new terry so for many many years up actually up until recently i sort of you know felt that that i couldn't do the same things that i did before um i think it's there's like a great debate over what is better to be born with a disability and you know have experienced that your whole life and um or have an injury later um i guess it's just you know sometimes i think it would would be easier having born with a disability because then yeah you don't know you know what you're you missing 
yeah. don't feel like you're missing out on anything. Um, but it took me many, many years to, to sort of get over that I'm missing out on things, I think, because I always felt a little bit like I was a dancer, I was a model, and those like things came, you know, there was no way I was going to do that again. That was not going to happen. Those like I, I tried, I tried it as a person in a wheelchair, but um, it wasn't the same for me. And I had to get over the fact that it didn't have to be the same, that it's okay, that it's different. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big, like, and that's a huge thing what you said where you said like that terry died that that statement i was like wow because i know people have felt that but i've never heard somebody articulate that feeling and put it into words like that and i think you know people who would want to make somebody feel better would say oh no no she didn't she's still in there but you very matter of fact was like no she's gone she's gone and like that's that's just that's a lot to take in and i think i think you're right there is a debate about about being whether being born disabled or acquiring disability is better or worse and i think the debate is silly. Neither is better or worse. They are different things that deserve respect either way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, my philosophy has always been: you you play the cards you're dealt. Um, you know, everybody gets a different set of cards in life. You know, whether you know, I think being born in Canada, it's it's almost like winning a lottery. You think about the percentage of the human population that lives in a place like this, where we have such amazing accessibility, such a great you know, social network um, and social supports, you know, we, we've got friends in Africa and I can't even imagine how it would be to live day to day with a spinal cord injury there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that constant debate. You know, I hear people say to me, oh, well, you know, you've got an incomplete injury and you've got a hand that works and you can stand up occasionally. Wish I had that and say, okay, well, yeah, but you know, you're a C6 quad that has full function of your arms. Would you prefer if you were a C2 quad? who had no arm function, but what if you can't even breathe? Like, where does it go? You know, you, you yeah. can't sit there and look at whose grass is greener. You've just got to say, this is, this is my, my yard and this is how I'm going to deal with it. You can't spend your whole time finding comparisons and you can't play like inter-disability oppression Olympics because it just, it's not going to work that way. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, I just wanted to, to touch on a little bit of the, the whole death feeling and, um, one of the things that I came to to realize is even though I felt for so many years that that Terry died, that that Terry didn't die and how we do really need to look at who we are and stay true to that. You know, um, there's, because I think we can let disability take over our lives and, you know, I was a very spontaneous person before. I, um, you know, rarely did I plan something. I, um, you know, did, I, you know, love, like to party and pretty, you know, was really social. You know, that is still me, right? And I still have to do those things to make me feel, because um, that's just my personality, right? Yeah. But I let sort of my disability get in the way and had to like, I mean, obviously there's some planning that needs to take place occasionally when you are in a wheelchair, right? Just accessibility in general, but, you know, trying to create moments of spontaneity um, is still really important. And, you know, I kind of forgot that and got into controlling every aspect of my life uh, and sort of leaving everything else behind. And now I've been able to sort of 
you know, thankfully with John's help. <laughs> I was going to say, and then she met me. Yeah, it was completely spontaneous and lives his life, you know, without planning anything. I plan something. Well, now things. you're a lot better too. I think we've, we've helped each other out on that aspect a lot. I completely <laughs> agree. I mean, I can, I can definitely, I can listen to that, you know, listening to the, the discussion of spontaneity, I can definitely relate to wanting to be spontaneous because my day-to-day -day care plan doesn't allow me to be spontaneous within this hour that I'm recording with you is like one of the few hours of the day where I don't have somebody constantly in my space and where I don't have somebody constantly coming to help me use the bathroom or do this thing or have help with dinner. And so the desire to just up and go is something that even at 36, I long for because everything I have to do is, has to be not planned to the letter, but planned so that I am safe and so that the people around me know what they're doing and it has to go like clockwork. And if one thing doesn't go, then the rest of the day could be shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have to say, you know, I was talking earlier about playing with the cards that you're dealt, but still to this day, I've been in, with a spinal cord injury 28, 27, 27, 28 years, something like that. Every time I pull into a parking lot and I have to pull my wheelchair out of my car and put it together and vice versa when I get back in, I still get so envious of people that just park and turn off their car and get out and walk away. I'm like, man, that would just make life so much easier if I didn't uh -huh. have to so, pull a chair yeah. apart and put it back together again. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure. And for me, in that respect, like, I have to sit and wait for paratransit to come all the time. And for you guys in BC, I know it's handy. It's um, a handy bus or handy transit. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called over there. Handy dirt. Yeah, that's right. It's a handy dirt. So, like, I have to wait for the Toronto equivalent of that, wheel trans, all the time to go anywhere. Not so much now because we're in the end of times. But... <laughs> before I'd have to wait a bunch for the bus. And so I know the feeling of wanting to just get up and go. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it can be, that's a big, I think, you know, that's a big loss that a lot of disabled people struggle with and don't know how to articulate is like, I can't just, my day isn't about me anymore. It's about the person driving the special bus or the attendant care worker, or it's never about just you going anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would just say, I mean, obviously, I think you've done it well in your life, but it, there's definitely a lot of aspects of your life that you don't feel in control of. So um, try to find those moments where, where you can have that feeling, you know, and, and be in that, you know. Um, for me, it was like, you know, I had care support. I, I live independently now, like with John and my son, but... Um, I had care support workers for a number of years after my injury and I felt the same way like I was like you know they I had to get you know go to bed at this certain time or be up at this certain time and you know I was 24 years old and wanted to like go out and party and you know have fun and meet people and and do all the things that kids in their 20s do. Like, now that I'm older, I don't mind going. Now that I'm, like, in my mid-30s, I don't mind going to bed early. And I don't mind, like, the little bit of structure. But back in the day, I was like, no, I want to be reckless. and Like, I want to do all the things I'm not supposed to do. Let me do that. Exactly, yeah. I think I've still got some of that in me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, that's good. You should hold on to that. Um, <laughs> Terry, one of the things you mentioned in the questionnaire was that you mentioned that your disability impacted your confidence a little bit? How does it do that? And how have you, I don't want to say overcome because that word feels weird, but how do you, how do you, how do you 
what is the word I want to say? How do you bring disability into that idea of competence? Yeah, so I, I struggle because I, like, as I said earlier, I just really felt like that person died. Um, I lived in a pretty superficial life. Uh, I never spoke, really. I mean, other than, you know, obviously, but, you know, I spoke to people, but I was just really quite actually um, introverted, though not because I was also a professional dancer at nightclubs, right, and raves. So it was like I had a day life and a night life, right? And I could, you know, I did runway shows and, um, but I just felt like everybody you know, that's what I had to offer was an appearance, right? Um, and when I had, had a spinal cord injury, I completely felt like that whole thing was taken away. And now I have to like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to have to actually, you know, learn. I have to, I have to like talk to somebody, yeah. Yes, and you know, have a brain and figure things out, right? I was really lucky I have a, had a very good support system, but I wouldn't, you know, I, you know, when I was at GF, GF Strong is our rehab center here. When I was there, it was, you have to wear track pants and running shoes. I've never worn track pants and running shoes my whole entire life, right? So I felt like already my disability was being defined A, by being a tetraplegic, right? So you're not gonna be able to wear normal clothes or drive a car or do this or that because you don't have hand function. How are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna do that, right? So you need to wear these certain types of clothing and have this support and do it this way. Um, and I refused that. But once I left GF Strong, I didn't even have mirrors in my house. I couldn't even look at myself as a person with disability. Um, I've heard that before. Of people who acquire disabilities who won't, who can't for months and months look at themselves in the mirror because it's a, it's a different person. Exactly. And I think it took me about five years and really until I started being connected to the disability community that I thought, okay, well, here's like my peer group and these people are pretty cool. I mean, outside of disability, I just got along with them, right? Like we had other things in common um, and it sort of opened me up a little bit more and I was able to, you know, start being a little bit more confident and working, working on that. Yeah, disability tends to, you know, it forces you a little bit to be more extroverted than you might be in your real life because you you have to talk to somebody every day to get the basic things you need. And you can't do it flatly all the time. You have to do it with some joy and happiness. Otherwise, it's no fun. Absolutely. And, and so, the, the rando people on the street that comment, what happened to you? You know, like constantly. <laughs> yeah, you have to build a thick skin. And so, John, for you, I guess the same question, but also I want to ask on top of that, um, for you, you also mentioned a little bit about, you know, masculinity, masculinity a little bit. And I want to know from you how your disability has impacted or played a role in your masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think, you know, that it sort of touches on what Terry was talking about, was that, you know, prior to her injury, a lot of her life revolved around physical appearance. Right. And so, you know, Terry's absolutely stunning, gorgeous, and she's really tall and has an amazing body. And when she was prior to her injury, you know, she used that, you know, that to her advantage to, you know, be artistic and be attractive and be, you know, she didn't have to rely on her intellectual capabilities to get by in life. 
Um, and for me, prior to my injury, I was hugely physically active. You know, a lot of the the sort of activities and the work that I did was all reliant on physical ability. Uh, and then you have a spinal cord injury. And, you know, now everything changes. Your physical abilities are, you know, when you have a physical disability, you can't rely on those physical abilities anymore. So you have to be a bit more intellectual. You have to, you know, you be able to communicate. Um, and I think as for Terry, you know, oftentimes women are, are maybe they it's in their own mindset or maybe it's in other people's mindset that their physical attraction is a, a huge part of their makeup. Uh, I think for men, you know, their physical ability, their, their perceived masculinity, their ability to provide, to protect, you know, that going back to that sort of caveman mentality of the hunter gatherer thing, you know, oftentimes that's taken away from you. Um, and I know a lot of people that have spinal cord injuries that I don't know if I want to say struggle, but they certainly want to find ways to continue to provide in that physical sort of, you know, traditional binary masculinity or masculine way. Um, yeah. And when, when you don't have that physical ability, especially for me, I was 16 years old at the time, you know, everybody I knew was running and kicking and jumping and screaming. And it was all about your physical ability. And suddenly now I'm no longer a high performance athlete. I've got to sit on the sidelines and watch, you know? And yeah. so I, in a way I was kind of lucky because I was still in high school at the time. And I pivoted from very much physical uh, education to more intellectual education. I started taking a lot of the, the sciences and social sciences and, you know, building up my, my knowledge because I knew I couldn't rely on my physical ability anymore. And certainly when it came to relationships with the opposite sex being, you know, that I'm traditional binary in my, my sexual outlook, um, you know, I had a nightmare trying to attract women for the longest time because I think, at that age, you know, most women are, are still very much fixated on physical appearance and not so much other aspects of a person's personality. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got into my late twenties or thirties that I started to be able to seek out more meaningful or, you know, intimate relationships with people. Because I think as, as women began to mature, they started to see me for my other qualities that maybe my physical abilities weren't what they were compared to other people. Yeah, I can imagine too. Though when I was a sixteen-year-old boy, all I wanted to do was fuck around with people, and I, <laughs> I didn't have that ability. Just as somebody with who was congenitally disabled, so I can imagine having that chance taken from you would really mess up your sense of manhood. Yeah, and I think you know, going at being you know physically fit, very active, high achiever in a lot of ways as a 16 year old man where pretty much every woman I looked at looked at me as a potential sexual partner to having no women look at me as a potential sexual partner was a lot to deal with. Yeah. I can imagine. Like I can, I, I remember being 16 and wanting everybody to pay attention to me. I didn't because I was a big power wheelchair user and nobody knew how to manage me. And like, also I was gay and I didn't know how to, talk about that and so that was super weird for me but I can I remember feeling like I'm never gonna have this and so you said you know you didn't start women really didn't start seeing you until you were in your late 20s early 30s and I can imagine like that's that's a long time from 16 to 30 to have to be like okay I'll just wait I'll just don't worry about it like I can imagine that was really frustrating absolutely yeah 
you know, it's, uh, you know, I think that impacted my outlook on life a lot, you know, it's, you know, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely tough. It's, it's, it's very strange to go from, you know, I, I'd imagine, I don't want to put words in Terry's mouth, but, you know, I'd imagine that everywhere she went, guys were dropping their jaws looking at her and maybe after your injury, it wasn't quite so much. Yeah, well, I didn't really have that much problem, but I think it's a little bit, <laughs> bit different um, that, you know, because I think as a woman and being in these like weird stereotypes or generalisms, I guess, right? Um, there are, I mean, there was a certain type of guy that was obviously attracted to me and I never, I, I think there was a curiosity that men had, you yeah. know? Um, and because I was like an, you know, attractive woman in a chair, which is kind of, you didn't see a lot of us around at the time. Um, but I wonder like just about the confidence thing and, and masculinity and sexual prowess and how that sort of, I mean, it doesn't change as much for women, although our sensation is different, but for a man, it changes so considerably. And especially in that hunter-gatherer, spread your seed sort of idea, right? Um, for a man with a, you know, a dis well, I, I don't know about other disabilities with spinal cord injury, you know, that really becomes affected. And there's a whole now planning process that can happen when you just want to have sex. Well, for me, it's like, you know, all I really need to do is a guy to, guy to throw me around, which they usually have no problem with anyways, right? Like here, get in this position here, I'll just help you. And you know, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a really good point. You know, I think, you know, certainly when it comes to, you know, the early stages of a relationship, when you're, you know, just start dating somebody and you want to, um, you know, perhaps, you know, make the first move, which I don't know, maybe I haven't been in the dating scene for years now. I think maybe uh, things have changed with the uh, Me Too movement and all that. But, you know, back in the day, you know, when I was a young man, it was very much expected that the man would make the first move, that he would, you know, um, try to, to, you know, reach out and, you know, make that first kiss or whatever it is. And when you've got that physical disability, it makes it a lot harder to... Uh, to do that. Friends, sorry about that. The thing, the thing was just like, your internet doesn't work, bye, sorry. Oh. It kept it, on recording, so I think you should be okay. If, if you hear me, <laughs> I'll cut it out, but there's definitely a point where I just went, no, please. Oh, we didn't hear that. <laughs> so you were in the middle of saying, sorry, you were saying that, you know, hunter-gatherers spread the seed sort of way, and then I lost you. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, she wrapped that up and I kind of took over and I was just saying that, um, you know, when I was a young man in the dating scene, there was very much an expectation that when you're dating somebody, if you're going to, you know, have that first kiss, it was almost always to be initiated by the man, you know, and when you're, you know, sitting two feet shorter than the woman standing next to you or you know you can't you know you've got a wheelchair blocking your ability to get close and cuddle with somebody or or you know make those sort of initial courtship moves it really made it difficult you know i think there there was an expectation that the guy would be the one making the first move and it was very very difficult when you're in a wheelchair and yeah 
Yeah, I I, I can I, I know how difficult it is to try to make the first move when you like in in male on male relationships it's a bit different. There's like there's no expectation of who's gonna do what. There's like oh which one of us should I don't know. So like, <laughs> but the same the same thing applies where like you you, you I would probably expect the able-bodied person that I was with to make the first move because I know that I can't and I know they know I can't so it's this weird thing of like you have to give them a lot of eyes and be like so hey do you want to like do the thing that I want you to do but I can't it's, it's it can be very very frustrating yeah I, I fully relate to that <laughs> so frustrating because you don't want to be too pushy right so you're like I want you to do it but I can't I can't give you subtle hints because I can't reach you or I can't you can't get in there yeah yeah, the subtle hints of wanting to do it can be hard. Um, yeah, or, you know, say, you know, I know for me on a few occasions, you go out for a date with somebody and you say, oh, do you want to come back to my place for a drink or something, right? And traditionally that would be, you know, you, you both sit down on the couch and, you know, you start rubbing each other's legs and then you start making out and then one thing leads to the other. Well, you know, when you can't really transfer very easily to that couch and that's a big hullabaloo, and then your body's spasming and you can't really make those moves. It could be a bit awkward. Yeah, I, can, I, I understand completely. Like I've, I've had one or two times where I went over to a partner's, to like a hookup partner's place. And when they realize how inaccessible their apartment is and how much work they'll have to do to get you from that wheelchair to that couch or that bed, it's like, oh, well, this is like, there's no, there's no real quick way to do that and make it sexy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um let me just see where i was here so so one thing i want to ask both of you i would love you to tell me your i was gonna say best and worst but let's stick to worst i want to know your worst dating story as somebody with a disability you got one ready to go no you go go. (laughs) um i don't know if i really had any worst ones you know i think it was just a series of small awkward moments here and there there was never any you know like really really awkward ones i think you know maybe there might have been a bowel issue here or there uh that i recall but uh generally when i have negative memories i try to suppress them as best i can um but i did uh when i was a young man i actually moved to england and i lived in the uk for for quite a few years and for anybody who's ever been to europe they will be well aware that women in Europe are a lot more open in sexual relations than perhaps women in Canada are. Um, And so that was kind of a nice change for me to be over there in my early 20s where I don't think the disability played in as such a big factor. Um, But I do remember one particular story, which was quite funny, I'll tell you. Um, You know, you go to the nightclubs there and it's not as age stratified there as it is here you know you'll get men and women of all ages into their 50s that are still going out to the nightclubs and having fun and hooking up and all that whereas in canada i think if you're over 30 and you're in the nightclubs people kind of look at you like you're a weirdo yeah but i was still a young guy and i was hanging out and you'd go to the clubs and maybe you might make out with one or two girls and then maybe if you got you know lucky at the 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 fourth girl of the night would be the one that says hey let's go back to my place right um and so that was that was kind of a, a nice change to to what it was like here in Canada. But I remember one time, you know, it was getting towards the end of the night and, you know, looked like I was going to be going home alone. And out of the blue, this girl came up to me and she, 
you know, in, in the UK, they, uh, they use 10 pence coins to you to make a phone call. Like you would use a quarter here, uh, or yeah. when we had pay phones, that tells you how old I am. Um, and she came up to me and she handed me a 10 P coin and said, call your mom and tell her you're not coming home tonight. I thought that, that was the best pickup line I ever had. That's, that's cute though. It's cute. I like her. She had balls on that. I like, I like that. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, so I didn't tell her that my mom lived in Canada. It would cost a hell of a lot more than 10p to call her. But uh, yeah, the night ended pretty yeah. good. That's awesome. And Terry? Uh, well, I don't really have a word. Like, I've been pretty lucky. Not really any bad dates or whatever. I mean, I guess the for me, so I went to lots of clubs and partied and stuff still after my injury. And so it was just the constant questions of you know can you come can you have an orgasm can you you know like how do what does it feel like or whatever and then it never really ever led anywhere um which was frustrating so i mean i never i can imagine because those questions are so like intrusive why would you want it to lead anywhere exactly exactly uh and i did i did it took me a really long time to actually have intercourse after or be sexually involved with someone uh a because my confidence uh issues and then b because of all those secondary complications you panic about like you know john was saying having an accident of some kind right um so i would would date dudes and i would kind of i first started out telling them everything that could go wrong and then i realized that didn't really work very well so, because it never usually led to a second or third date. Um, and I remember one guy I was dating for a period of time and he just was like angry that I wouldn't have sex with him, right? And um, he was uh, not from Canada and he was saying, you Canadian girls are so frigid or whatever. And I'm like, normally I'm not really frigid, but anyways, I'm just not super comfortable having sex, so. Uh, and look how mad you're getting and maybe that's why i won't have sex with you because now you're getting mad <laughs> exactly exactly so those are just some of my whatever i mean definitely had bad dates i'm sure mostly oh i guess my bad dates are the dudes who like forget their wallet and then you end up having to pay for them or you know like oh not so nothing to do with disability just douchey no. douchey man exactly exactly I don't even but know. I think it's funny how you brought up like how you brought up like wanting to tell them everything and wanting to lay out the handbook and wanting to go. I totally understand that impulse because like you know they're scared already of you being disabled and you're like, well, if I can just if I can just make them feel better, then this will go better. If I just if I just don't if I tell them everything that could go wrong and tell them that it won't go wrong, it'll be this will be fine. It'll be just fine. I also what think I, sorry, Andrew, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's also could be like a fear thing for me. So I felt so certain that they were just going to leave once they found out that I'm not just sitting in a wheelchair. Like I could just be a pretty girl sitting down all the time. Um, <laughs> but there are so many other things that are happening with your body that I was like, there's no way they're going to stick around. So I might as well just make it happen sooner than later, right? Yeah, I might as well push them away. And when they leave, I can be like, see, I told you they leave. Watch, look, they left. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. That's, you pretty much described every relationship I've had with a man ever. 
<laughs> if I tell them everything that sucks, they'll leave, and then I get to say, I get to cry about how they left because I made them left. Exactly. I get it. Um. Uh. Next question that I had, I wanted to ask you about Terry. I wanted to ask you specifically about. You said in your form that you had to learn how to redefine your orgasms. Can you mm-hmm. tell me more about that and how that played out for you and what you mean by that? Well, so for me, I um, don't have any sensation like in the genital area, well, any, anywhere, like below nipple level down. Um, yeah. And so it was really, you know, I was just like, I, I just, I, you know, for sounds horrible, but I felt like for the, like I, if I tried the guy on, I'm like, well, he's just going to be fucking a dead body basically. Like that's what it's going to seem like. Right. Like how can and that. And we found the tag for this episode. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> no, no. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make it the title of this. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, screwing a dead body. I don't know. Nope. Not a dead body. Terry Thorson, fucking a dead body. Anyway, it. it's happening. Oh God. So, um, you know, that was, you know, what I what I thought. Um, and it kind of took someone who really knew, you know, was exploratory and patient and willing to like work with me in my body and obviously knew what they were doing when it came to oral sex, which I was really surprised about that um, I could have a physical reaction, although it's very similar. I don't know how much, Andrew, you know about the spinal cord injury community, but for higher level uh, injuries, we have something called autonomic dysreflexia. Yep. And it can be like a life-threatening thing. Usually it's something, you know, that's going wrong with your body, but that's sort of what I get when I have an orgasm. I know there's nothing wrong with my body. It's just my body's reaction to something is happening. Right. So I've had to like, normally it would be like, Oh my God, you know, freak out. Don't want to die. Sometimes I have, it has gone there. (laughs) Uh, But for the most part, that's, you know, how I've been able to sort of change that and go, okay, that's like my orgasm now, right? And that can be actually pleasure. I can imagine though, having to, having to straddle that line between like, oh, this is pleasurable. Oh, I might die. Like that's, and because, you know, your body doesn't differentiate between pleasure and pain super much like it does but not there's a real fine line with disability what feels good and feels what doesn't feel so good so i can imagine like that's stressful when you just want to get off and yeah. enjoy yourself and then you're like oh i could be dead i could I might, we might have to go to the ER later like definitely because yeah. it is totally a fine line so if i push it a little bit too much then i get really really bad and i'm basically curled up in a ball crying which is not very good sexual experience for the partner that i'm with <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine your partner. Yeah. Like, it must be like, oh, no, I, <laughs> I, she almost died, and B, now she's crying. Oh, no. Yeah, I think for, for people with spinal cord injuries, so I'll give you a, a quick uh, autonomic dysreflexia 101. Yeah, um, please. Basically, what it is, is for anybody who has a spinal cord injury above about the T6 level, so sort of mid-chest, um, that's where your sympathetic nervous system, the autonomic nervous system um, connects, right? Um, and so what happens, you've heard of this whole fight or flight mechanism, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's one of our nervous systems. It's part of our, our autonomic nervous system. And any sort of stimulus below the level of injury 
you know, if you stub your toe or you get a, a you know, your bladder's too full, your bowel's too full, or you have an orgasm, any sort of major stimulus, usually what'll happen is it'll elevate your blood pressure and elevate your heart rate. And then once that sort of stimulus has gone away, your body will self-regulate, right? And lower your blood pressure and lower your heart rate. But when your spinal cord injury is in those sorts of areas, the parasympathetic nervous system that's responsible for calming your, your body back down is not fully connected. And so what ends up happening is this blood pressure elevation and heart rate elevation just spikes really high out of control and it can lead to strokes. It can lead to heart attacks. You know, it causes a whole bunch of secondary um, symptoms like headaches and sweating and flushing and uh, goosebumps. And it can be really, really uncomfortable and really, really dangerous. And so, yeah, for, for most people that have injuries uh, above T6, the simple act of having an orgasm can be life-threatening. That's, I mean, <laughs> fuck. You already have enough shit to do with the ableism, all the things you have to do just to, like, get in the game as somebody with this injury. And then, <laughs> like, shit. Oh, there's nothing, there's yeah. nothing worse than, you know, you're having sex and you can feel you're starting to climax. And as you're starting to climax you can feel your blood pressure is elevating really high. Your head's starting to pound. You're getting lots of muscle spasms. And then as soon as you actually have that orgasm, you get this huge flush of a headache that just all this blood pressure just pumps right into your brain and you're hunched over your heart's going a million miles an hour. Your blood pressure is spiking. Your head is in absolute agony and you've just had an orgasm and you're just, all you want to do is go, ah, but really you're going, ah. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, I wish people, I wish, I wish we would see that in popular culture when we talk about sex and disability. Like, I wish we'd see a main character with that kind of reaction to orgasm because, like, I can imagine, I haven't been able to come on my own in a, in a while now, but I can imagine that if I, that if I came and that was what happened to me, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to do this again. If this is what it is, I don't want to have it. That's what happens for a lot of guys. Uh, you know, they have their spinal cord injury and they want to explore their sexuality. You know, and they'll, they'll get a, a vibrator or something to try to achieve an orgasm. But as they get closer and closer to orgasm, that dysreflexia gets stronger and stronger. And they stop before they ever get to that orgasm because all the symptoms of dysreflexia are so negative. You know, they, they don't want to go any further. This is famous yeah. too, like for me, you know, self-exploration, I feel more comfortable with people around because I'm like, if something goes wrong, then at least there's somebody there that, you know. You don't want to be found dead laying in bed with yeah. a vibrator in your hand? Yeah. <laughs> the vibrator's still going? Yeah. <laughs> so there are two possible titles for this episode. It's the, the first one, or you don't want to be found dead with a vibrator in your hand? <laughs> Well, it's kind of like you hear about, you know, some of these, uh, the autoerotic asphyxiation. And, you know, there's more than a few people and celebrities that have been found dead, you know, with a, a noose around their neck as they were trying to get off. And yeah. uh, it's really not too dissimilar, you know, the fear of, of having a, a major stroke or a heart attack as a result of trying to achieve an orgasm. Like, but again, I can, I can like that fear... If I had that daily fear, I would, like, I don't know if I would ever want to engage in sex just because I wouldn't want to kill myself. Oh, yeah, no. the thing is, the orgasm feels so good, it's, it's worth getting the dysreflexia sometimes. True, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to shift gears a bit. Tell me a little bit about being parents to a 10-year-old. 
challenging yeah you know i i mean i think we're really really lucky um lucian our son is he's very he's a good kid so we're really lucky i uh divorced his dad when he was two and a half and um so i've been on my own with him um since then on your own well no and then you came in about a year and a half later uh so yeah and i mean it's great having the support for sure obviously it has its challenges too because you, you're like combining blending families right and he's yeah. very close to his dad as well and they have their own family um but we're really lucky like he's a good I, I remember one time when John first started dating me and uh you know I don't know he didn't obviously meet Lucian right away but he uh said he's the first four-year-old that I've ever known that can use a knife because literally he has to like cut up my food for me um he has to do all these things like you know but I I, I try really really hard to not make his life be about disability as well so I try mostly to do everything you know I mean I still like him to have his own responsibilities but when it comes to sort of helping me um I try you to don't turn him into like your kid tendon that's like okay you're my kids so they also have to do everything but yeah I get I yeah, understand that yeah exactly yeah yeah but we're really lucky I mean it's I find it I mean I right now especially during COVID time he's an only child at our house and he's um you know he he's a pretty i mean he's not super super social but uh he'd want to play he wants to play video games like every other kid does right um of but course. i find it hard because i don't have a lot of places where i can take him you know that are covid friendly right now um that's outside like parks are not really all that accessible um playgrounds you know when i when i took him to the playground when he was two years old i'd have to get other people strangers to push him on the swings right i couldn't get anywhere near him um and he wants to do stuff yeah with you know he wants to go bike riding and running and kick a ball and you know that that i feel i have a bit of harbor guilt for that i guess i'm not feeling like i could that i'm adapting as well to being a parent with a disability how does he feel having two parents with disabilities? I don't even think he really notices it, really, to be honest. Uh, maybe sometimes. Maybe like, sometimes. From my perspective, right? Like, you know, I'd love to kick a soccer ball with him. Soccer was a huge part of my life before my injury. That's, you know, obviously not going to happen anymore. Um, you know, taking him fishing or, you know, going camping and, you know, teaching him how to chop wood and light a fire. Like, those are things that, are not really feasible anymore. And it's really, really frustrating. Um, you know, some of those physical, you know, dad aspects. I think Terry's a very modern mom and I'm a very traditional dad. I'm more, you know, you know, cut wood and bang nails and do those, those sort of masculine things. Um, and it's hard cause I can't really show them those things. Yeah, and then we try to teach him by communicating. But as you know, communication with even adults can sometimes hard when you have to express how to do things. So with yeah. a two-year-old who half listens, um, it's even more challenging. So then it ends Just up wants to get back to winning that level of the game. And it's like, Mom, I don't want to listen to what you need right now because that game is much more important. Exactly. I swear, if he could play video games 24 hours a day for the rest of his life, that's what he would want to do. Yeah. 
I don't blame him. I understand. I was 10. I had brothers. I know. <laughs> um, John, do you feel like you, you know, you talked about the traditional masculinity, things you would do with a boy, fishing, hunting, and like wood stuff, which is something that I never did. Um, but do you feel like your sense of masculinity has had to soften because of that and like change and morph? Um, maybe, maybe it's manifested itself in other ways. And I'm, you know, I grew up with some very strong father figures in my life who were very, you know, I wouldn't say strict, but they were get shit done. You know, don't, don't fuck around. There's things that need to be done, get them done. And that's my mentality as well. And maybe, you know, Terry's, very much uh, peaceful negotiator type. And I'm more of a authoritarian do what you're told and listen to your mom type thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think our, our parenting styles clash. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's love... good to have both, but yeah. We've... Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. Cause I think, you know, I think that having a parent that doesn't let their disability stop them for the kid could be really, invaluable because they might only see and i see john's point they might only see like disabled people as being you know as not being able to do a lot or being being seeing images that isn't aren't true and so if john can instill some like no i'm gonna do it regardless of my disability maybe that's maybe that's a good thing for him to see right now and as he gets older and learns about other disabilities and other disabled experiences, then, then he can make his choice. But maybe right now, it's important for him to see that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, we, we've got a little vacation planned in the next couple of weeks. We're gonna, um, renting a friend's accessible RV and we're gonna go a, a big tour around uh, BC. And I think part of the motivation for that, particularly for Terry, it was she wants to show him, hey, I can still do a lot of things. You know, although you may, underestimate my ability to to get out and, and explore new places and do new things she she can do this stuff um and so we're all going to do it together as a family that's really i think that's i think you should document that and put that some put, put that on like instagram or something because i think most people wouldn't assume that you could which is so silly because of course you can but people people are ignorant and wouldn't assume that two disabled parents could take their non-disabled kid on a on a cross provincial trip which is also take me with you i want to come can i come interesting we did recently go to sweden well obviously pre last year i guess it was or yeah yeah, so we've taken him to sweden and had a good couple weeks there and you know took him on me and john had to work so you know it was mostly me and him and you know he'll I'll, i'll ask him for his help sometimes and uh but mostly you know he's he's a good kid he just follows along and has to be forced into doing a lot of adult things, I think, because we're not sit on the ground, play cars kind of family, right? It's like, okay, you're going to Yeah, you're like, go, go, go. Yeah. yeah. But I think, too, that that's good for him. I also think, like, we talked earlier about how you didn't want to get him to be your, like, kid tenant sort of thing. But I think also you and him alone in a foreign country, uh, foreign country, but, like, Europe, it was probably really good for him to see how both – inaccessible year probably was for you in some spots and how he would have to step up and help his mom yeah and he sure did he carried all our luggage and he was an absolute rock star on that trip yeah i don't think 
Take me with one... you. I, I want to go to Europe. <laughs> yeah, I think he had one breakdown like on the way when we were leaving. Like he he kept it in so good for like we were there for over two weeks, and I don't think he had a single breakdown once until like I think the day before we were leaving. He just had a complete meltdown. I think it was just a buildup of all that stress of having to help us you know with with luggage and help his mom and just you know not a lot sleeping of, properly yeah lots of adult activities not a lot of kids around so mm-hmm. yeah no he's, yeah uh, knowing that like but if anything happens to him you guys would do your best but no i think for a non-disabled kid with disabled parents I'm, i can imagine it would be like well they're in they're disabled wait if something happens to me yes they care and yes they'll be there but like maybe they can't help me like a non-disabled parent would yeah well i did teach him that and i think i instilled way too many fears in him (laughs) Um, unfortunately because uh because i was alone with him when he was you know so young i was like okay if we're um if you want to climb up yeah fine you can climb up high on the monkey bars or the tree or whatever but just so you know i can't save you like you're going to be on your own uh or like pools right so i think that's my biggest sort of failure that i see is that i was so okay well if you go in that pool and where you jump in because that's always a fear when you have a toddler is that they're just of course pool, right I'm like, you're going to die. Like, that's it. You're just going to get You just laid it out. Oh, my God. So you shouldn't be surprised if later down the line, he's like, I need to go see a therapist. Yeah, but it's also, it's little things, right? Like teaching him how to ride a bike. You know, it, it was challenging, but we managed to do it. And he's pretty awesome on his bike. But, you know, when he falls and hurts himself, I can't pick him up and, and comfort him and, and, you know, make him feel, you know, Basically, I can sit beside him and try to talk him through the pain a little bit and then say, okay, now you got to get up and pick up your bike and we got to go home and you're going to have to get back on your bike and wheel home. So there's a lot of getting back on the horse or whatever mentality. He realizes that when things go wrong, you can't just, you know, there's no parachute going to come and, and protect you. No one's, gonna, no one's able to hug me and pick me up right now and make me okay. Yeah, yeah you're going to have to You can do all that from a non-physical perspective obviously and say all the right things but i i I can see how that wouldn't be the same and for me being a disabled kid and having you know my parents around that it was different for me and so i can imagine for him like he's had to yeah he's had to have like a tougher a tougher a tougher skin Mm -hmm. yeah um what else did i want to ask you there was one really good one oh um Terry, you say in your and you say in your questionnaire, and we've kind of been chatting about this, kind of throughout the whole thing, and I want to get there because it's really, it was a really, it was really not controversial, not controversial, but it was a great answer. You said like that you are don't feel like you're defined by your wheelchair, um, yeah. and for me, why I touch on that is because for me, I do feel like I'm defined by the chair, in that there's so much of without my chair I can't do, and there's so much of my disability experience that is reliant on the chair. So can you elaborate on that for me, why you don't feel defined by the chair and, and, you know, maybe what parts of the chair you enjoy and what parts of the chair you don't like so much? So I guess like it's taken me a long time because obviously, you know, I feel like our society defines us by like, we're just visibly in a wheelchair. So they automatically like assume 
the the worst of us i think and then i think that's why we become inspirational is because when they find out all these things that we do they think you know if they try that on for themselves oh i probably wouldn't have gotten out of bed right and i think about that i think everybody has a choice to do what they do um and some of us choose to get out of bed and have a really fulfilling day in life and some of us maybe not as much right but every single every day we have a choice that we make and so i got kind of decided that i was going to let that society tell me that i was a tetraplegic anymore or that i'm a quad or that like i think first and foremost we need to recognize our sexuality number one like i am a woman first right and maybe because you know at at the time especially there was very few women with spinal cord injuries or in wheelchairs um that that became really really important and because i you know i'm surrounded by men all the time i'm and you know i play rugby i'm surrounded by men you know um but you know i am very different and i want to be sort of i want to feel like a woman i want to be a woman i want to do womanly things um so, so I did change that a little bit and of how I thought that. And I think that started it and then realizing, and I, I, I don't know, I read this somewhere um, and I can't remember, but how the wheelchair, you know, without the wheelchair, uh, the wheelchair is like a freedom for me, right? It gives me the opportunity to be able to go out and do those things um, that I wouldn't have to do. It's not the easiest way to get around, granted, but we're very lucky to live where we are. And so every day I just feel so like blessed to be like living where I live, um, having, you know, the opportunities that I do, which are endless. Like as a person with a disability here, we have endless opportunities and can do whatever we, we want to do. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't always feel that way, but I think that's how I've helped it not define, you know, not be defined by my disability is I just think of all the things that I can do, even though they're different, you know, my, I'm not this quad anymore. Right. I can uh, elaborate on that a little bit. So I think language is important. Um, and yep. I think the language that people use and the language that we use goes a long ways to defining how people perceive us. So the one thing that the one term that I really cannot stand and I won't stand for it whenever I see it is wheelchair bound. Oh, that person's wheelchair bound. I'm not wheelchair bound, you know, and, and I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm a wheelchair user. I use a wheelchair as I would use any other tool, the same as I use my car, same as I use a wrench, the same as I use a, a stove and a you know frying pan. It's a tool for me to achieve things. And you know, as I say, I'm not bound to the wheelchair. I would be bound to bed if not for the wheelchair. The wheelchair liberates me. It frees me and it provides me mobility. Um, you know, I often question people and their lack of understanding of their bodies right you know your body is the only thing that you will have with you from the moment you're born to the moment you're dead you should probably understand how it works i think most people know more about how their car works than they know about how their body works and that doubly for people with disabilities so understanding how your body works and recognizing that your body is your spaceship and it's going to carry you throughout your life you know 
you need to take care of it and you need to recognize that the wheelchair does not define you. The wheelchair is a tool that you use to liberate yourself from, you know, from being uh, bed bound. bound. Yeah. Talk about being bound. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, some of us choose that. Before there were wheelchairs, yes, we do. <laughs> before there were wheelchairs, you were bedbound. And if you live in a, you know, developing country that has very low resources, you know, getting a wheelchair can be impossible. And you are bedbound, and you're bedbound until you get a pressure injury and it goes septic and you die. And luckily, we are not like that. We have good wheelchairs and good accessible f- facilities and buildings and environments, and we have good seat cushions and access to catheters and medical coverage and all of these things that give us this freedom to to live the lives we want to live although we're usually a couple of feet shorter than most people other than that no different that's kind of one of the things you mentioned in the questionnaire and if you could elaborate on that about kind of about the the you know how how impossible it is to get the medical expertise we need if we don't live in a, a certain geographic space i guess what i mean to put it more plainly you know we're lucky to live in a country where we can get all this shit to us can you kind of elaborate on how that feeling has impacted your day-to-day like where where did you come to want to talk about that stuff well first things first i'm going to disagree with you and we don't have that available to all of us in canada there's a huge disparity in care coverage depending on where you live you know yeah Um, and that's in the work that i do one of the things that we're really striving towards is what we call equitable and optimal care for all Canadians with spinal cord injuries. Because here in Vancouver, we have an amazing sexual health clinic. We've got amazing doctors and nurses that really understand sex and sexuality and disability and spinal cord injury. And, you know, they're an amazing resource for people here in Vancouver. In Quebec, they have none, zero. There's no sexual health therapists in, in Quebec. And I don't think there's very many in Ontario either. I don't either. think there's any in Ontario. I've you know, so no. there's that disparity. You know, again, the rehab center here in GF Strong in Vancouver covers all of British Columbia and the Yukon. So if you're injured in Whitehorse, guess where you're going for your rehab? You're coming here to Vancouver. And where's your family? Where's your support network? Where's your, your, your care provision? They're all up north. And that's a hell of a long drive to come down here to the big city to get care, right? And now you have to leave all your family and friends behind. And then you go through the, the process of, of rehabilitation and you want to get back to your family. You want to get back to your community. You want to get back to the life that you knew. And you go back there and you find out that the facilities aren't accessible, that nobody knows what, how to manage a spinal cord injury and getting access to the care that you need is impossible. And then you get what I call SCI refugees, where you get these people from these small rural communities where their entire life is, that's where they want to be, that's the life they want to live, and they're forced to relocate to Toronto or to Calgary or to Vancouver or to Montreal because that's where the accessibility and the appropriate care services are. And I think that's bullshit. I think that people should be able to live where they want to live and live the life they want to live in the community they want to live in and not be forced to relocate to a major urban center simply because that's where the care is. Yeah, I completely agree with you. How do you think we fix that problem? Well, that's what we're working on. Um, you know, I think that increasing knowledge of healthcare providers about spinal cord injury and creating resources and knowledge, you know, I, I talk to, to medical students every year and in the good medical programs that are just, you know, sort of changing their ways now, 
They'll get five days on neurological disability. That's so, it? Five, five days? days? Yep. Wow. Seven years of education. Fuck. So that covers CP, MS, spinal cord injury, uh, you know, you name it, the entire list. Do you need somebody to help you with this work? I'm available. Let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. I think any medical school across the country would be happy to have you come in and talk to them. Um, reach out to them and say, look, I can talk to you about what it's like to live with a disability because we're moving towards more of a patient-centered care model where, you know, the patient is at the center and they're sort of breaking down that hierarchy where the doctor is up here and the patient is down there. We're starting to get towards equity where that lived experience, that knowledge of living in your own body is seen as, an, as a kind of expertise. Yeah, it's finally being given that title of expertise. Finally, exactly. it took fucking long enough, but well, the root word of expertise is experience. And you've got what, 36 years of experience with CP. Yeah. That's a lot of expertise, you know, um, as well. You know, I think one of the great benefits of this pandemic we're living in right now is that telehealth is being adopted. We've been pushing it for years and there've been so many pushbacks from ministry, health ministries across the country. Oh, how do we bill for that? How do we ensure that it's secure? How do we protect patient data? Well, now every health, uh, health uh, ministry across the country has adopted telehealth because we needed it. And I hope that as this pandemic eases at some point in the near future, that they'll go, oh, all those artificial barriers we thought there were to telehealth no longer exist. So you can live with a spinal cord injury in Yellowknife and talk to your physiatrist and talk to your sexual health and talk to your urologist and do that from the comfort of your own home via telehealth, that they can do the remote testing, that we have the technology to test people, to do physical exams without being in the same room. It's possible. Yeah. We have that technology. Yeah. Let's start using it. Let's make sure that people get the care they need no matter where they are and not force people to go on long waiting lists and travel long distances for simple care. And you know what? That speaks to my ignorance. Thank you for educating me because I didn't know that you, I didn't know that you couldn't get, you couldn't just go to a hospital and get care in Yellowknife. I didn't realize that you had to go to a whole other, you had to change your whole life just to get care. That. That seems you can. you can get care at a hospital in Yellowknife, but you try telling a doctor there that you're having a severe case of autonomic dysreflexia. Yeah. And watch the blank stare on their face because they have no clue what that is. They would never, they were never taught that. So that's why we create online resources like Skyre Community. Uh, you can find that Skyre, S-C-I-R-E. If you Google Skyre, you'll find it. And it explains everything there is to do with spinal cord injury. It's evidence-based. It's not you know, subjective or, or somebody's opinion. This is all evidence-based, based on literature, and it covers every aspect of living with a spinal cord injury. And if you have any questions or your healthcare providers have any questions, you just show them that. It'll explain it to them in, in everyday language. And, and hopefully that'll help to alleviate some of that uh, misconception or, or misunderstanding. I will make sure that that's in the show notes because I think that's super important and I think that's really valuable. And I, I wish that Wow, five days? That's it? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really bad. <laughs> that's really bad. Um, okay, my last question, and thank you so much for taking the time today. My last question for both of you. Because you're a disabled couple, I thought it would be fun, fun to ask you to tell me a hilarious slash sexy thing that has only happened to you too because you're both disabled. So something that happened in the bedroom or when you were together, when you were dating that only happened because you're both disabled. Um, I do remember 
I'll get back to the dysreflexia. So um, because I'm able to stand up, um, generally that's the position we adopt when we're having sex. So okay. uh, we have like a, a, a big sort of wedge. wedge cushion type thing that Terry straddles and I stand up behind her and we have sex, you know, because I know Terry can have clitoral orgasms. We have a nice little vibrator that we'll pull out sometimes. Um, and you know, that way she can hopefully get a good orgasm out of, uh, out of the experience as well. And I remember this one time, you know, we're having sex and, you know, I think the idea of climaxing simultaneously with your partner is so sexy. And I think it's something everybody, you know, thinks, you know, it's just amazing. It's, it's, it's fantastic if you can have that, that sexual release simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I've got the vibrator on her and we're having sex and we're both getting there at the same time. And we both had huge orgasms simultaneously and we both had massive dysreflexia. So like, I'm like basically incapacitated. I fall back into my wheelchair, my head's pounding, my body's shaking, Terry's dysreflexic. She needs to get out of that position so she can get sat up to alleviate her dysreflexia. She's got, like yelling at me, like get me off this wedge so I can get sat up. And I'm like, I can't even move. I'm like feeling like my heart's gonna pump out of my chest. And oh no! You know, I can just imagine, you know, the you know family members coming in three days later and finding us you know terry's naked over a, a butt in the air out of the air and i'm laying in my chair and we're both <laughs> from dyslexic attacks that would have been a fun way to go out so and did this happen was was lucian around could lucian have saved you if you needed it no oh god no, no. <laughs> we don't even have sex barely when he's around so because he goes to his dad's house for half the time yeah so I- we have like this 50 50 so we usually try to save because he's very like walk in the door we have a pretty small house i mean sometimes we'll throw him in front of the video games and he doesn't usually bug us but uh, it's it's a scary thing i don't want to traumatize him quite in that way yet yeah, yeah how'd you find your mom and stepdad dead well <laughs> you see Exactly. Yeah, we got a great house, but the insulation between the walls is not the greatest. So yeah. it would be rather difficult to do it without having any noise translating to the rest of the house. Well, I think my funny story would be, um, so John and I have been together for about six years now. So maybe we're not as like spontaneous because, you know, we found a position that works for us, both of us, and it's good, right? And then earlier on in in our relationship we were very much more exploratory right um so we were always trying to have like sex on the couch or sex on a table and he's very physically able so he could like pick me up anyways we decided we were going to try to have sex outside on on our patio table which is wood by the way this table right here actually oh no (laughs) anyways so didn't even think of like putting pillows down or anything just like random he like just lifts me up we have sex on the table blah 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 and then get off and he's like oh there's a not a very good mark on your back there so oh. now it's be off my back for not you know for a period of time to heal that up and yeah so that was the last of our um, exploratory times i guess exploratory exploratory i like that maybe i'm gonna have to go through this and figure out which one i want the title to be because there was so many good um this was great though i really really appreciate the time today and i loved sitting down with both of you and chatting how do because i love both what you're trying to do to 
discuss Final Coin Injury and to talk about it and to bring more information to rural areas and all that kind of stuff. How do people get a hold of both of you and how can they follow your work? Uh, yeah, you can find me if you go to the Praxis Institute's website. So it's praxisinstitute.org uh, and look up the consumer program and my contact details are in there. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And Terry? And for me, it's um, sci-bc.ca uh, and under our staff, you can, you can find me. All right. Terry and John, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark today. And I will talk to you very soon. Awesome. Andrew, hopefully we'll see you in Vancouver soon. Soon. Once you know. Get rid of all these barriers, the, the equity for all, so we can all travel to whatever province and not worry about lack of care. Or and, fun. you know, Corona. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye, Andrew. Bye. Bye. Alright friends, this has been another edition of Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. I'm of course your number one queer cripple and your disabled Dick Smith host, Andrew Gerza. If you like what you heard today and you want to follow my work and find out more about what I do, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast directly, you can head over to Twitter and punch in DisAftDarkPod and follow us there. If you want to contact the show with a show idea, a guest idea, a comment, or complaint, you can head over to your email and email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to this latest edition of Disability After Dark, and we'll be here to shine a bright light on more things really soon. Thanks, everybody. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Music was by Music by Space Robot Scientists. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Notice 2020